Hello and welcome in to the QB11 show. I am Doug Scott, joined by QB11. Joined by QB11? Yeah. Joined by QB11, as always. How are you, Andrew? Are you cheating on me? Are you recording with other people? Is, um, what's going on here? Well, I have to admit, there has been... No, no, no. I just can't talk tonight. I gotcha. Well, I'm doing well. How are you doing, Doug? Doing great. Ducks pulled out a, a hard-fought, gutsy 20-17 to victory in the cold air at Autzen on Saturday night. So Ducks control their own fate still to get to the Pac-12 title game against USC. If they can beat the Beavers this week, um, they'll be in. So, Yeah, uh, big opportunity. I know a lot of people were down in the dumps after the, the loss to Washington a week prior, and I understand why, but um, now, now Oregon in a good position with one game left to guarantee themselves a spot. Uh, in, com- in complete control of their own destiny, as you said, uh, for, for a Pac-12 championship bid. So with all things considered, with a hobbled quarterback, it's, it's tough to complain about beating a top 15 team at home and uh, advancing your, your position in the conference. Yeah, and I think a lot of the, the stuff during the week wasn't just the, the coming off the loss to Washington. It was also the injury situation with Bo and some of the offensive linemen, particularly Bo, right? And seemingly everyone thought he probably wasn't going to be able to play. So I think that contributed to a lot of the fan kind of you know, depression, if you will, or out or, or poor outlook or down in the dumps kind of attitude. And then of course they kept us, uh, kept us guessing until right up close to kickoff. And then he came out and played and, and obviously he was not anywhere near a hundred percent, but Bo was very gutsy and the offense was tailored um, to work around him, his, his limitations as much as possible. And, you know, credit the Ducks defense. I mean, I think that's the story of this game, right? I mean, they, I mean, Utah only scored 17 points. Seven of those was on their defense. So really the Oregon defense only gave up 10 points in this game, three in the first half and the seven in the, you know, kind of mid third quarter. And they got three consecutive stops at the end of this game, two on downs and one interception that allowed the Ducks to hold on to the victory. So, you know, big, big props to the defense after, you know, especially after what happened last week with them. Yeah, also forced three turnovers in this game, which were needed because Oregon was a little sloppy with the ball offensively. Um, Even turnovers in this game, three for each team. But yeah, I mean, all things considered, like when you're playing with a quarterback that is like you could tell the Adam and Bubble wrap, he wasn't mobile at all. Um, I, I tweeted out the analogy. It was like he was golfing, not really playing football in this game. Like it was really just trying to create controlled circumstances where um, he could, we could use different aspects of his arm uh, to try to free up some room that uh, schematically Utah really wasn't willing to give in the run game. So uh, fun, fun game. Glad Orton got the win. Now you're in a position going into the Civil War to to lock up the Pac-12 title and go play USC. Yeah, for sure. It's not going to be an easy game up there in Corvallis. I mean, they're eight and three on the year. They, you know, I got a chance to get to nine and three, knock off, you know, their rival Ducks, and you know they're going to be waiting up there. And they've been very successful at home this year under Jonathan Smith. They're playing a lot better defensively. They they might have the best defense in the Pac-12. In fact, I think they do. Um, offensively, they're they're a bit limited, of course, at quarterback and in their passing game. But they've been running it much better of late, and they they blew out Arizona State pretty handily yesterday. Held them, I think, to three points or seven points or something. So, um, you know, it's gonna be it's gonna be a tough game up there in Corvallis, and and the Ducks uh, one more game ahead of them to to get the job done and and make it to their fourth straight uh, Pac-12 title game if they if they do. Yeah. Yeah, good good opportunity. So let's uh, let's get into this Utah game a little deeper here because um, I've got a lot of things to say. I think again, like let's just let's start on the offense. Bo Nix plays um, very clearly limits what Oregon's able to do. Um, they didn't run any of their under center fourteen personnel stuff. They were they were keeping them in the gun, keeping them away from the line of scrimmage, trying to cl- uh, create as many clean pocket situations. Uh, as as clear of reads for the offensive line in terms of pass pass pro as possible, just given the fact that you don't have Forsyth, um, you you have some guys some guys kind of cycling in and out with injuries uh, at the guard spots, and then you have a quarterback that's got a bad a bad leg. So uh, a lot of a lot of empty. I know I saw some fans like, well, why are we just continuing to go to empty? Well, part of that is because 
when you play empty, it, it forces the defense to show you coverage, but it also with their coverage kind of shows you who's actually an available rusher, um, which creates better opportunities for the offensive line to get into the right protection uh, and, and kind of mirror uh, what Utah was, was trying to do defensively. But U- Utah came out, especially as the game went on and they figured out that Bo was not going to be a threat uh, or really involved in the plan with his legs. They started just really stacking the box. And instead of having that backside player, respect the potential pull and quarterback run he was crashing and so as the game went on the effectiveness of the run game waned um and Bo really had to win this game on a bad leg with his arm and I think he did a really good job all things considered yeah I mean definitely was the the worst rushing you know game of the year for Oregon but I think the reasons are are as you say I mean Utah like I mean they had like nine guys in the box you know pretty much the whole second half and and Oregon, you know, I, I definitely had some questions about the game plan. I thought, you know, personally, I thought Oregon relied on the screen game, uh, you know, too much. And it wasn't, they had some success at times with it, especially early in the game. Later in the game, it wasn't really working for them at all. Um, but the run game wasn't working. So I think they were trying to use the screen game kind of as an extension of the run game. I would have liked to have seen them, you know, maybe doing a little bit more of the kind of shallow crossers or even, even taking shot plays more than they did. But maybe, maybe that was limited. I I know Bo didn't have, I don't know if he really had the ability to drive the ball or drop back and set up as, you know, all that often. So it was probably trying to, trying to mask some of that as well as was what I'm guessing. Yeah, so I've got a couple opinions on that. So the first thing, I, I don't think that this was the strongest called game for Coach Dillingham of the season, especially the third quarter. I think there was, again, I don't like to accuse or or be too harsh on play callers because especially in a game like this where your your play sheet is substantially cut down just by the fact that your quarterback is physically incapable of operating in a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that you've specialized in most of the year. Um, but I guess we'll start with the pass game a little bit. The the reason that they were running those perimeter screens is they were reading a second level defender, whether it was an edge player, um, a nickel, a second level linebacker. And they, what they were doing is using the screen to replace the option of bow running, right? Like trying to get numbers, but all, all Utah did was just go to cover zero play man to man coverage. And then just they're playing 11 on 10 because Bo's not a threat in the run game. So they always had an extra guy at the point of attack, and we were getting um, throw, we were getting uh, handoff reads just by the way that they were playing numbers-wise. So they, they did a good job of adjusting, I think, as the game went on, Utah, they being they, um, and, and kind of dictating to Oregon what the read was going to be on those throws. And so it forced Oregon to make the decision to just kind of get away from the run, uh, because no matter how good your offensive line and your backs are, and I do think that, uh, we were talking a little bit before recording. I think that Noah Whittington and Bucky Irving have both surpassed my wildest expectations for how well they'd play this year. But it doesn't matter how good they are. If they're constantly running into an outnumbered box with a ton of bodies crowding, there's just not going to be a lot of space and a lot of seams. So um, t- it's a tough situation to find your offense. And I think that they will continue to build off of the concepts that they ran last week now, moving into this Oregon State game, and, and hopefully be able to diversify um, as Bo gets more healthy. Yeah, I thought um, Dante Thornton obviously had a breakout game for him. I think about 150 yards receiving. He had two 250-plus two yarders on the, on, the, on the game. Obviously, two fumbles credited to him. Uh, the first one after picking up a third and 17 conversion and just kind of being a little loose, trying to get some extra yardage, a little loose with the ball, unfortunately. The other one was that crazy reverse play with Ty Thompson in a quarterback on the Oregon's first offensive possession of the, of the second half, which I'm not going to really fault, you know, I don't know whose fault that was, whether it was ties or Dante's or just a really stupid boneheaded play call or all of the above. So I don't know. I'm not going to beat, beat Dante up too much about that one, but you know, great game receiving and, and he really does some nice things um, with the ball after the catch, you know, we saw it on the first down play that he converted before fumbling. And then, you know, it was a couple of screen passes and other plays in the game. I think we were talking about this ahead of time too, that he's a pretty dynamic runner, you know, after the catch. Yeah. I think that's the thing that surprises most people that aren't familiar with Thornton is that 
despite the fact that he's 6'5", he's probably, I mean, him and Franklin are probably our two best receivers post-catch. And for a guy with that kind of length um, to be as explosive in the short area and as nimble and just have the, the open field instincts that he does, like we caught a screen, um, I think, in the third quarter. That was a really nice pickup. Obviously, the third and 17 was a catch and run. Uh, it was a nice throw, obviously, by Bo and a good catch. But the moves he made post-catch were fantastic. It was just the ball security was a little loose. Uh, I personally hated the first play of the third quarter. It just it felt like a wasted opportunity. Like Oregon was having success offensively in the first half, despite Bo being very immobile. Um, and like Bo was able to move around. It's not like he was completely in cement, but uh, for the most part, you could tell that the the plan was to keep him as static as possible to avoid. Um, re-aggravating that right ankle, potentially causing the rehab to take longer, maybe even losing him for the game. So uh, I think in terms of the most important part of this game was getting the win. The second most important part was to keep Bo in one piece and to to try to reduce the amount of impact on that ankle as much as possible. And I don't think that that could have gone much better. He didn't get hit hardly at all. Um, The very few times he did have to escape the pocket, he was able to do it like very gingerly and carefully and not really risk uh, aggravating that injury. And so for him to play an entire game, and I would assume that like his rehab is really just picking up where it left off prior. Um, he looked to be moving around fine. He didn't seem to be kind of tweaking that at all. So that's that's a positive development, right? Like you, you got to win against a top 15 team and your quarterback was able to not aggravate an existing injury in the process. So uh, like all, all – things considered offensively for Oregon in this game, that is a huge win. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I think after that play, you know, between the adjustments that Utah made and I think just, you know, Oregon, you know, the limitations they had on offense and the way that Utah adjusted to it, right. It was just, it was just going to be a grinded out second half, uh, you know, and that's why that, that, that play that turned into seven points for Utah was such a, kind of a boneheaded, <laughs> you know, thing to happen, right? Because you're just like, you knew that you were probably going to be really hard pressed to come up with points, but your defense was playing so well and you had just gotten the stop on the, you know, first drive of the, of the third quarter for Utah and forced them to punt. And then you just give them a free seven and, and let them right back into the game. It was, it was so aggravating. I just, yeah, it was just such a crazy decision I, and i'm not quite sure what was going into that i'm sure it looks great on the practice field and you know in the mind when you're drawing it up right so easy to second guess but you know i thought i thought oregon you know offensively was really just you know utah played it well really limited they got that one drive uh that then kind of stalled i think it was a short field drive then kind of stalled out and and they got the field goal on it um which obviously proved to be the difference in the game and then and then they had another another drive where they had an opportunity to put the game away and threw the pick that you know, honestly, Cam McCormick saved, probably saved the game. Um, you know, that that interception that Clark Phillips, you know, pulled off on the really ill-advised throw from Bo to throw all the way across the field, uh, that's a pick six if Cam doesn't tackle him. So, you know, huge play there. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the one thing this also underscores is just how important it is to have a quarterback with some mobility. You don't have to be a runner, um, but it the – just the threat of having the quarterback run and having a quarterback that can escape the pocket and cause some problems fundamentally changes how teams can defend you um, structurally. And because Nick's had that basically taken away from him and he was a a statuesque pocket quarterback in this game, we saw how that affected the numbers and the box counts that Oregon faced in the run game. And so something to keep in mind when evaluating quarterback prospects for Oregon in the future um, like Dante Moore is a really good athlete. He's not an explosive runner, but he's a good athlete. Um, like that kind of stuff is important. You can't have guys that can't move because as you see, it can really put your run game at a disadvantage. Yeah. So maybe you want to, maybe we should flip over and talk about the defense a little bit, you know, only holding Utah to 10 points, which was, you know, to me by far the best defensive showing of the season. You know, three interceptions, two untipped balls. So there, you know, I had credit to Keon Warehudson, I think had one, and uh, was it Jordan Riley who tipped the other one, and, and Noah and, and Bennett caught those two, and then Bennett had the, the really big, crucial, you know, interception late in the game as well. 
on a, on a great read over a play thrown toward Kincaid. But the defense only gave up seven points, uh, you know, only one touchdown, and then the three-point field goal on the first drive of Utah, and and really their strongest game of the year. What do you think were the keys to that? Well, there was a couple of things. I think we talked about it coming into this game from a matchup standpoint, like the 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 ability to just put Gonzo on their number one receiver Vele and have Vele just completely disappear from the game was a benefit. Like they they didn't have secondary and tertiary threats at the receiver position that Oregon really had any hard time dealing with like those guys were strapped up for the most part all night um, and then I think the plan in regards to how they defended Dalton Kincaid was fairly effective I mean like th- like Utah is looking to feed Kincaid through volume and through scheme um, and so he's going to get his he's going to get some plays he's going to get some stuff but relative to what we saw from him earlier in the year against USC like this was a very quiet night for Dalton Kincaid and I think that the secondary really just stepped up in big ways played really smart. Um, thought Oregon did a really good job, the defensive staff, of mi- mixing coverages. I thought that there was more simulated pressures and blitzes. Um, and again, just mixing mixing looks in the back and front um, and creating some pressures and keeping Cam Rising uncomfortable. Like a lot of the plays where there were incompletions or missed throws um, were situations where Oregon was able to create pressure um, and move him off his initial spot and get him up moving out of the pocket. Um, and Overall, like they did a pretty good job of limiting him on the ground too. Uh, so I think this was a really, really strong performance by the back seven, uh, specifically the secondary, which was much maligned after a, a very tough performance against Washington. Um, yeah, but, and Cam Rising, you know, twenty-one for thirty-eight, only a buck seventy, and three and those three interceptions we talked about before. I mean, Utah only averaged four and a half yards per attempt, you know, which is really, really low. Um, and Kincaid had had 99 yards on 11 catches, but kept him out of the end zone. His longest was was in fact their longest their longest play of the entire game on offense was 18 yards. Yeah, yeah, it was the I believe that was the end around um, for the touchdown. Yeah. Yep. So, yep. like their their traditional run game. Like this is also a situation where like this just is a good matchup for Oregon personnel wise. Like Oregon is deep with big long bodies on the defensive front, um, deep with linebackers that can play against a heavy box run game. Uh, and I, I thought that guys, players like Mace Foon and Braden Swinson and DJ Johnson did a good job in the edge in this game of setting the edge and playing tough off the edge. But really, Oregon was just winning between the tackles. Like the B gaps were owned by Oregon, the A gap was owned by Oregon. Um, and a lot of like short yardage power run situations, Oregon just flat out stuffed Utah. Casey Rogers had two big tackles for loss. Brandon Dorless had a big tackle for loss and in, in third and fourth and short situations. Um, and or yeah, Oregon just won. Like they just beat him up up front, and that was clear. Like uh, nineteen carries for fifty five yards for Tavian Thomas. Tavian Thomas absolutely was just gliding through the second level and abusing us last year. He had a hard time even getting started in this game. Um, yeah, his longest run was eight yards. Yeah, a lot of credit to the defensive front, um, the linebackers. This was Noah Sewell's best game of the year, like by a pretty wide margin. And again, some of that is like his strongest skill set is playing downhill against teams that want to play base run like this. And so Utah leaned into who they are, and they tried to establish a physicality, and and we sent them away. We sent them back. And so. Uh, that's really encouraging for Oregon, especially because shoot, Oregon State's going to do the exact same thing. They are the most heavy run ga- run team in the conference, tendency wise. So, uh, going to be a lot of opportunities for this front seven to to earn some more respect um, in coming weeks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, anything more on this game? No, I, I'm just overall really excited with the way that this like. This is a different way for Oregon to win, right? Oregon has done a really good job offensively all season long of kind of abusing teams and getting up and being really wide open and scoring fast and just kind of being extremely efficient. And Oregon wasn't able to be as efficient. Like they were transitioning with a quarterback who was probably at about 50% mobility wise. Um, and they found other ways to win. The defense stepped up. The secondary stepped up. Players that had rough games last week really turned it around and made impacts. Guys like Bennett Williams. Um, that's that's all you could really ask for if you're Oregon in this spot, right? Like a lot of a lot of Oregon teams of the past, including the one that we had last year, would have folded in this spot, lost big, and the whole season would have really 
kind of gotten away from us in a downhill manner. So really proud of this team. The new coaching staff um, clearly has a lot of buy-in with the locker room and they're doing a good job of getting us ready with good plans. Yeah. I, I, I can't agree with that more. Yeah. I can't agree with that anymore uh, you know, than I, than I will, because especially the Oregon defense, right. Which has been much maligned this year and, and, you know, often with reason, but, you know, in that second half of that game, I mean, the defense won that. They, I mean, yeah, they gave up the, the seven points, and, but you know, look at this: that Utah came out, uh, the defense forced a punt. Uh, then Oregon offense gives seven free points to Utah, and then our offense goes three and out, and so our defense is back on the field. You know, only up seven. They force another uh at that point they get an interception right so huge play there our offense goes three and out again and then our defense gives up their lone touchdown of the game 86 yard drive games tied our offense gets the ball back uh is able to get the field goal to go up to go up three and then our defense you know downs interception downs to end the game i mean three huge stops with the game on the line uh, you know, so just just such a gritty way to win. You know, with the, with the lim- offense as limited as it was, and the defense just stepping up and doing their job at home. And um, maybe we should do something. We should have done this all year, but I'm going to start it now. Uh, let's do, give give out a game ball. Who's your game ball going to this game? Ooh, I mean Bo Nix. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that was that was honestly probably the most gutsy performance by an Oregon quarterback I can remember. That was just like the epitome of toughness played really smart. Like a lot of people coming into this year were really harsh at Bo as a pocket passer. All Bo could be in this game was a pocket passer. Everyone in the stadium knew it. Everyone in the opposing press box knew it on their sideline. And you know what? It didn't matter. Like he, he distributed the ball. Well, he made a lot of plays downfield on some big time throws to Dante Thornton. Um, and like just did a good job of operating the offense, all things considered against one of the better defenses, if not the best defense that we've played so far in conference. Yeah. I'll, I agree with all of that. And I had, I had him queued up in case you picked the guy that I'm going to name uh, Bennett Williams, uh, 14 tackles, seven solo, what half a tackle for loss, the two interceptions and, you know, his last home game as a duck his probably his best game as a duck and his duck are certainly up there. Um, he was the heart and soul of that defense. And especially after the way, you know, last week went for him to come back this game and make up for it in the way that he did, uh, you know, he got my game ball. Yeah. And I think Dante Thornton would be the the other guy that has to be mentioned here, right? Um, tough turnover early in the game, but bounced back and just made big play after big play. Uh, his speed was a major factor in this game, his ability to get vertical, but also his ability post-catch. Um, to find space and create yardage opportunities. So looking for him to continue to be a big part of the game plan as we finish off this season here with uh, one game this week and guaranteed, obviously a bowl game guaranteed, but hopefully two games in the next two weeks. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's uh, let's put a wrap on that one and flip over to our picks for the week and our Pac-12 power rankings and as well as go through the rest of those Pac-12 games. As our listeners will note, we only picked Pac-12 games this week due to the rather limited uh, schedule of decent games around the country being the penultimate week of the season. So six games. You went 5-1 and one this week, QB, so you're bouncing back after a couple of rough weeks. And uh, I picked up four, four wins and two losses this week, so I, my three-week uh, winning streak over you has come to an inglorious end, unfortunately, for me. But that puts you at slightly ahead on the year at 59 and 53, and I am 53 and 59. So, yeah, where we're at. Yeah, I uh, I felt good about those picks. Um, hopefully I can keep this momentum up here. We got one more week um, to really nail it, and then obviously we'll do our, our bowl season picks. But uh, just ov- overall, this week – kind of went according to plan. Like I think everybody kind of uh, performed to expectation. Um, and that USC UCLA game was just a total barn burner that really could have gone either way. So I, I really, you were just flipping a coin on that one. Yeah. That's the one game you missed. And I also missed it as well. And I guess we'll talk about that one next. Um, you know, obviously USC punched their ticket to the PAC 12 title game, kept their playoff hopes alive as well. And got, got some help ahead of them that they may or may not have needed, but certainly doesn't hurt. 
uh, 48-45. Utah, uh, UCLA went up 14-zip early in this game, and then uh, it kind of became a shootout after that. USC bounced back in the second quarter. I thought Dorian Thompson Robinson, you know, had three or four inter- four interceptions this game, three interceptions this game, including two right at the end of the first half that, um, you know, really were, you know, kind of inexplicable and and definitely pr- proved to be the margin of difference in this game with the with the field goal off of that last one. But uh, you know, six hundred and fifty yards for USC, five hundred and seven for UCLA. Can- uh, Caleb Williams passed for four hundred and seventy and two touchdowns. He's right there in the Heisman conversation as we come down the stretch. And USC did what they needed to do, outlasted UCLA in the shootout that we all expected. And uh, they're going they're going to, to Las Vegas to play in the Pac-12 title game for the second time in three years. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I'll say here is that I, it's pretty clear to me, at least, that Caleb Williams is the single most talented player in the conference. Um, offense, defense, regard, like, irregardless, like he is just insane like his arm talent he had a couple throws in this game that were just like there just isn't anybody else that can make those throws from those body angles on the move just coming to balance and just absolutely ripping off high level NFL throws so that offense is is scary they're going to score points on whoever they play um, in that game in Vegas Uh, but the other thing is is that like UCLA ran the ball super effectively in this game and I think that at times uh, they got away from it a little bit too much um which is strange to say about a chip team. I thought he got a little impatient or maybe it was Dorian Thompson Robinson, but um, regardless, really, really good game. I, I didn't downgrade UCLA very much for this loss. I think UCLA is a good football team. Um, and I think that those two teams are very evenly matched and that last drive could have, could have gone either way um, to decide, decide who was going to win. Yeah, for sure. It's uh it's uh a tough one. <laughs> it was a tough one for UCLA. You know, heartbreaking Ross. DTR had six total touchdowns along with the three picks, almost 400 yards, over 400, almost 400 yards of, of total offense as well. And uh, USC did a decent job of keeping Charbonnet in check, only 95 yards on the ground. And they ran the ball pretty effectively, even without Travis Dye. Austin Jones stepped up and had 120 yards and two touchdowns. So um, what will be interesting is to watch USC going up against Notre Dame um, this next week. Um, see how they fare there. I expect them to win that game. I think their their offense is probably going to be too much for for Notre Dame to 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 hold back and but you know, we'll see. USC might roll into Vegas with playoff hopes on the line and that would be you know would be a good place for the conference to to be in if it happens. Yeah, that that game's going to be a really interesting one cuz stylistically um USC is good enough offensively to score points on most people and and I think that Notre Dame is certainly the best defense they've seen this year, but uh, Notre Dame has really found the run game and their offensive line is playing at a high level and USC is really bad up front. So um, that's going to be a a very interesting game to watch stylistically. All right. Any more on this game? No, I got nothing. Let's move on. Uh, I want to talk about this Washington state game. Yeah, let's do it. Excellent. So Washington state just, Honestly, it's playing some really good quietly because their games haven't been as uh, marquee necessarily, um, but they're they're quietly playing really good football right now. Um, going on the road, I believe this was there. Yeah, right? it was down in Arizona. Yep. Yeah, going on the road to Arizona and really just taking care of business. And I think that the the thing that's most impressive about it is Washington State is just doing the obvious thing, which is sounds stupid like of course everyone should be doing the 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 obvious thing but they're they are uh they're just they're they're not too stuck in how they do things to adjust and to just like take what the other team is not good at and they've shown now twice this season that they'll just lean on the on the rush game um 161 yards on the ground in this game uh, against an Arizona defense that really hasn't been able to do a whole lot. Um, and then their defense and their team speed defensively really showed up in this game, uh, holding holding Arizona and that explosive offense to 20 points. Um, impressive, impressive performance. We'll see how that applies uh, in the Apple Cup next week against a, a Washington offense that I think is a pretty substantial step up from this Arizona squad. So, uh, But I, I definitely think that Washington State has a puncher's chance in that game. Um, it's really going to come down to Cam Ward. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, they they also picked off Delora four times in this game, which was was huge. That game's going to be really interesting next week, and obviously we'll talk about it on our preview show. But you know, it's in in Pullman. It's a seven thirty kickoff. It's going to be cold. Might be snowy. Who knows? Uh, you know what what effect that might have on the Washington passing attack. I guess we'll find out. But yeah, Cam Ward's going to have to play a clean game for sure, and the defense is going to have to step up. But yeah, I uh, this is the other game I lost this week. I had Arizona. You know covering the four and and they really had you know no chance with the four four turnovers and their offense really got slowed down and their that knocked out their slim slim hopes of making a bowl game uh, got knocked out with that loss so they still can end up five and seven on the year if they can win the territorial cup next week which obviously would be a huge huge improvement for them after last season's uh, one win one win effort and they're they're a team on the rise but they got to get they got to protect the ball better and they got to find some defense yeah, uh, transitioning over here to a, another team involving an Arizona State, an Arizona school. Arizona State goes down uh, thirty-one to seven to Oregon State. Arizona State just seems like they're kind of finally mailing it in. Uh, watched a tiny bit of this game. Just one of those. They they just look like a team that's just had a rough go, right? And it's starting to kind of catch up with them. And I think that the the fact that they weren't going to be able to make a bowl, I think everyone's just kind of ready to be done on the Arizona State side. Uh, Oregon State outgained Arizona State 443 to 276 in this game. Um, Oregon State was pretty balanced, 221 yards passing, 222 yards rushing. Uh, just just a really overall strong effort by Oregon State. Didn't allow a whole lot um, from, from an Arizona State passing game that's been explosive at times this year. Only 122 yards for uh, Arizona State through the air on 32 attempts. So kind of goes to show that th- this is going to be a really interesting matchup with a hobbled Bo Nix against probably the best secondary in the conference. So uh, Ben, Ben Branson played one of his stronger games of the year, uh, but it was really on the back of Damian Martinez in that run game. Uh, Damian Martinez ran for 138 yards on 22 carries for two touchdowns. Uh, just really resetting the line of scrimmage, dominant effort by Oregon State, setting up a, a big time top twenty-five matchup for the Civil War next week. Yeah, and the Beavers did a really great job of holding Elijah Badger in check. Um, he's somebody who's been uh, who, who's had quite a bit of of success in the passing game this year. But you know, I, I think the one standout for Arizona State that's come along this season is their running back. Uh, Xavier Valade, he had 100 yards on only 13 carries, so that's something to look for if you're Oregon. Can you, you know, Oregon, you got to expect both of these teams next week in that former Civil War matchup are going to be leaning on the run game pretty hard. And so, you know, if, if Oregon or Oregon State can establish the run game, that might go a long way to determining who wins that game. Yeah, uh, Colorado went to Washington and got blown out um, exactly <laughs> as we expected. Uh Everyone covers against Colorado except for Cal. Yeah, fifty-four um, to seven. <laughs> yeah, uh, not a whole lot to do in this game. They covered in the first half. Cal's or Colorado's really, really bad. Michael Penix had a strong but short outing, um, and then Washington really tried through volume to get this run game going. Did a decent job, but overall, um, still not the strength of this team offensively. But they can they can drop back and chuck it around with the best of them. So uh, another, another big win. Washington advances to nine and two uh, going, which I think if you're a Washington fan in year one, I mean, that's like far surpassing expectations. Um, so really, really strong seasons in year one for Kalen DeBoer uh, as they move towards that Apple cup against Washington state and Pullman on, I think, is that a Friday game? No, it's on Saturday night, late seven thirty kick Saturday night. Okay. So the, by the time they kick off, they will already know if they have a shot, uh, to get to Vegas or not, because all the other games will be will be done. I mean, it could be a pretty anticlimactic day, right? Oregon plays at twelve thirty. If Oregon wins, it's over. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also if um, you know UCLA and if if UCLA wins on Friday, they knock Washington out. So um, uh, perfect. Yeah. Excellent. Last game. Um, big game. Isn't that what they call it? It's, yeah, it's not the big game you you informed me of. Because the big game is Michigan Ohio State. I'm pretty yeah, sure the big game and a big game. I, I could be wrong. It, I okay, think you're right. I any, think you're right. Any listener that knows, please feel free to send us a tweet. We'd love to have a more educated uh, perspective on this. Uh, Cal wins twenty-seven to twenty. Uh, Stanford like 
is just bad. <laughs> at yeah. this at this point, that much is clear. Jack Plummer uh, turned the ball over twice in this game. This game was really a twenty-seven to uh, seventeen game, but uh, David Shaw <laughs> kicked a what was it a sixty-one yard field goal as time expired to make it a twenty-seven to twenty game. Yeah, and I think uh, I think from what I understand, that also made the score hit the over. So there was a lot of uh, betters who were pretty unhappy about that. Yeah, David Shaw really um, must have had a lot of money on the over in this game. We really need that sixty-yard field goal to cut the lead to seven. <laughs> yeah, about four hundred, uh, exactly four hundred yards of offense for Stanford in this game, um, getting outgained by Cal. Uh, Cal had actually about, about even. Actually, no, about even. Sorry, Cal only had three ninety three um, turnovers. About even this game as well. Uh, Cal had two to Stanford's one. I didn't watch a second of this game, and I'm Why honestly better off for it. So <laughs> these are two bad of, football teams. These are two really bad football teams. Not a lot to add here. Two teams that won't be making a bowl. Um, the two worst teams in the old Pac twelve North by pretty substantial margins. Um, and honestly, two teams that need new head coaches. Yeah, but probably won't be getting them. No, no, probably not. They'll just keep rolling. Yeah, so they, they don't care. They, their, they, their administrations don't care. No, they don't, and that's fine. Let's let them not care. Um, transitioning now to our power rankings. Uh, I'm assuming that the bottom is going to stay the same for both of us. I've got Colorado at 12, Stanford at 11, ASU at 10. I'm actually no, 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 no. Cal's at ten for me. <laughs> I, I okay, that's fine. We will continue to disagree on this until the end of the season. I'm sure. Um, I think Arizona State would lose to Cal right now. So, um, but I digress. Uh, Arizona at eight. Yep, Wazoo at seven, OSU at six. Yes. Now here's where it might get a little interesting. So I've got UCLA at five. They've got three conference losses now. Um, so I, I can't have them above a two loss conference team and Washington, even though they have the head to head win. So I've got Washington at four, Utah at three, uh, Oregon at two and USC at one. Um, yeah, they, I have the same order in that five and we can talk about our rationale. Go for it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's pretty clear to me, like again, UCLA three loss team. I do think that they're better than Oregon state though. Uh, I just think that they have the poor luck of playing all the best teams in the conference this year. Like UCLA is the only team that played every team in the top five of my power rankings. Um, and so I'm not going to punish them for having three losses when Oregon state didn't have to play UCLA or, uh, well, they did play Utah, but so that's, that's why uh, UCLA has wins against Utah and, and Washington who are two of the top four teams in my power rankings. So that puts them above an Oregon state team that got handled pretty good by Utah and lost at home in the USC. Yeah. I mean, to me, I'll talk about my rankings a little bit and then I'll talk about some, some scheduling stuff. So, I mean, I think Washington and UCLA, like I, I have Washington at four and UCLA at five, but I'm, I'm still, I mean, UCLA beat up Washington pretty handily and I think UCLA is probably a better team. But the scheduling disparity is so different between those. But uh, so I don't know. I'll call them tied for four, maybe. I think Oregon with a healthy Bo Nix is the number one team in this conference, but they don't have a healthy Bo Nix right now. So I'm going to give Utah, or I'm sorry, USC the benefit of the doubt and put them first and and Utah's third. But I, I mean, honestly, though, I could see Utah being fifth. I think that three, four, five is, I think you could rank that any way you want. Um, and I wouldn't, I couldn't really argue against it. Yeah, and I can hear the screeches from Montlake right now. Like, well, Washington beat Oregon. How can you have Oregon above them? Well, this is a pretty simple argument. Uh, Oregon lost by a field goal with their quarterback going down with three possessions left in the game in a position to go up go up by 10 points. Um, and Washington lost to ASU, who just got beat 31-7 to in the same stadium by, by Oregon State. Like, Arizona State is a horrible football team. They got handled pretty good in Los Angeles. Um, I'm not taking credit away from them for beating Oregon because they did win that game. Injuries are what they are, and, it, and they happen. Uh, but their resume isn't the same quality as Oregon's. Oregon has, Oregon has wins against UCLA and Utah. Washington didn't even play Utah or USC, and they lost to UCLA. So yeah. uh, Washington is 1-1 one one against teams in our top five. Oregon is 2-1 against teams in our top five. So 
Yeah, um, and and I'll go that one further. So I I tweeted about this earlier today. The scheduling disparities are having a pretty massive impact on the Pac-12 state at the top of the Pac-12 standings this year because you mentioned Washington's only played two of the top of top five. Obviously, they can't play themselves, but they've only played two of the top five. Their overall uh, record of their conference opponents is 29 wins and 44 losses. USC also has only played one. I'm sorry, also only played two of the top five. They played Utah and UCLA. Their uh, conference opponents are even worse at 28 and 45. So USC benefited by not having to play Oregon or Washington. Washington benefited by not having to play USC or Utah. Um, Oregon and Utah each played three you know, two of the three of the top five, um, you know, like I said, Oregon went two and one, Utah went one and two and UCLA had to play all four of the top five and split them at two and two. So, you know, their, their overall uh, record of opponents is 35 and 39. So a full seven games more difficult than, than USC's as an example. So it's a pretty major uh, difference in scheduling this year. I guess the, the good news, uh, you know, for, if you're looking ahead to next season is the disparity amongst those teams evens out quite a bit next year with the scheduling changeover. So actually UCLA will have a slight advantage in that they don't play Oregon or Washington, but USC will have to play both. Washington's going to have to play Oregon, USC and Utah. So there'll be a more of a full round Robin, full round Robin at the top of what's expected to be the top of the conference anyway. So it it should be a little more, uh, you know, a little more even of a playing field as we as we look to fill out the final Pac-12 championship game in 2023 if we really want to look ahead. I mean, I just think that what we should do is just relegate Stanford and Colorado and play a nine-game round robin. I'm good with that. I'm good with that. <laughs> like, these teams just are not playing the same sport as everybody else in the conference. Not that, and that, like, to be fair, Cal and ASU could very easily get relegated as well. They're both just as horrible. Um, like, there's a pretty, like, Wazoo up is I would consider all good football teams and Arizona down are all bad football teams. So uh, pretty clear split here in the Pac-12. But I still think that overall this is probably the strongest the Pac-12 has been in many years. I mean, I don't, I actually don't think it's really a debate. I think this is probably the best it's been since maybe that 2014 season. Yeah, I mean, I think you might make an argument for 2015 or 2017 were pretty strong seasons. I don't think at the top, though, as much. Like, I think this is, you know, if you look at the top seven in this conference, you know, they're all, I mean, Washington State's got a chance to win eight games. Everyone else in the top six is all going to be at eight or better. You know, a lot of nine and tens in there. Um the the top half of the conference is as good as it's been, and yeah, at least probably almost a decade. Yeah, it's definitely been a, a, an uptick of a year for for the conference for sure. Yeah, strong, it's good to have a strong conference this year. I think it's made for a lot of fun matchups. I mean, really, the Pac-12 was the the focus of the college football world this weekend, with not a lot of great games nationally. Um, the USC U, uh, UCLA game. I'm actually really interested to see what the viewership numbers look like for that game. Um, and then the Utah-Oregon game following as kind of a Pac-12 doubleheader on on Fox and ESPN uh, to to, fi- to finish off the night, I think, was a, was a good showing for the Pac-12 that desperately was needed years ago before these contract issues became a problem. And both the games delivered. I mean, they were, you know, they were both three-point games, right, and came right down to the end of the game. So it wasn't like, you know, an a disappointment for viewers like the, the college football world was watching and, and we got two really competitive football games. Um, I know we didn't pick games, but I, we got a little bit of time left. I, you know, there's probably a few games around the country that are worth noting. At least there were some, you know, upsets this week. All of the, the top level teams barely squeaked by Georgia, you know, 16 to six over Kentucky, Ohio state, you know, beat Maryland by 13, but was up three late in the game. Michigan squeaked by Illinois on a last-second field goal. TCU squeaked by Baylor on a last-second field goal. Tennessee got absolutely blown out by South Carolina, 63-38. to Okay, here's a crazy stat for that game. South Carolina had scored 18 offensive touchdowns in their seven SEC games prior. They scored nine against Tennessee on Saturday night. Yeah. So they, they basically scored 50% of their prior touchdown, like 
it just what what a crazy game. Um, Spencer Rattler actually looking like a good quarterback for the first time this year. Just overall, really really cool environment in South Carolina. I would actually love to get out there for a game. Uh, the TCU Baylor game was really really fun. I think a clock mismanagement error by Sonny Dykes at the end caused them to have to run the kit the kicking unit on with the clock running down to expire. The like kicker didn't get to do the normal routine and back up and get all lined up. Like he just ran out and basically kicked it. Um, and they they hit the game winner um, to 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 beat a team that's six and five in Baylor. But that's a good football team. Um, it's just yeah. a really crazy difficult conference right now in the Big Twelve with a lot of parity. All three of the top teams didn't look particularly great. Like uh, Ohio State scored a touchdown on the last play of the game to kind of separate and make the score look less competitive than it was. That was a dogfight with Maryland in College Park. Uh, Illinois, Michigan, like frankly, like Michigan was playing with 12 men on the field in that game. I don't know how much that you watched. I watched that whole game. Uh, Big Ten officials very clearly wanted an 11-0 Michigan going to Ann Arbor next week. That was uh, That was like the closest thing I can I can think of to like point shaving by officials that I've seen this season. Wow. I going back to that TCU game real quick. I mean TCU continues their their season that is very like Florida State 2014-ish, right? I mean they're undefeated. They've won all their games, but it feels like they could have lost five of them. Um and I don't think I mean I think they're a good football team. Um but it, it'll be interesting to see how they, they finish with Iowa state. And then of course they could play either Kansas state or Texas in the big 12 championship game. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. And- <laughs> I got another one. Let's do our weekly check-in in Coral Gables. Uh, Miami yeah. went on the road to play Clemson this week. Clemson won 40 to 10, but let me break this down a little bit. So Miami had six first downs and 98 yards of total offense in this game. Clemson was like, Clemson was winning this game in complete control uh, throughout. But the funniest part of this game was how Clemson won 40 to 10 and fumbled the ball five times in the second half. Wow. (laughs) So despite fumbling the ball five times in the second half, Clemson wins at home by 30, surrendering 98 total yards of offense. But just, just absolutely crazy. Um, looking, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling up the drive chart really quick. Yeah, I was looking at that. Miami had one drive of 32 yards that got their field goal and their touchdown drive was a 10 yard drive. Yeah. So second heart, second half for Clemson, um, was, uh, 10 plays, 32 yards, missed field goal, four plays, 28 yards, interception, two plays, 44 yards, fumble. So big play fumble, five plays, six yards, fumble. Three plays, two yards, punt. Eight plays, eighty-six yards, touchdown. Seven plays, thirty-six yards, touchdown. I know there was. Uh, I know for sure there was five balls on the ground. I, they weren't all recovered by Miami, but just kind of funny. Like uh, Bud Elliott said it really well on the on the Cover Three podcast last night. Miami was more interested in late hits, personal fouls, and trying to strip the ball than they were in actually tackling Clemson offensive players. So um, good to see that things are going so well in Coral Gables. <laughs> Well, and the crazy part here from the Clemson side of things is with the other losses that happened with Tennessee and um, their their path, you know, I, I I called their playoff hopes like dead a week ago and or two weeks ago, and now they actually have a, a path, um, and it's kind of crazy because I don't think they're a good team, but they got a path to get to the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, here's the deal: you got to put four teams in, and I don't know that I don't know that there's two teams that deserve to be in. <laughs> I think that there's one team that's very clearly at that level this year, but I don't know that there's anybody else that's been consistently like that. Um, that Michigan-Ohio State game is going to be a really interesting one to watch, especially when you consider uh, the, the the knee injury to Blake Corum in that game. He came back and ran one carry after, but definitely did not look like he was healthy. Um also want to point out that that late in that Tennessee game, it didn't really affect the final score, uh, but Pendon Hooker went down with a non-contact knee injury that was really tough to see. Um, yeah. Reminiscent of Dennis Dixon's injury. Um, just just tough. Hate to see a team that's having like a really magical season that's been down for a while uh, have it kind of fall apart the way that it is right now with, with losing your quarterback to injury, um, losing on the road in the fashion that they lost to and now really not having any shot at the playoff. Yeah. It, it, it's a, that you never like to see, especially a guy like, you know, 
playing his last game or his last season, right? And he's done. It's it's rough, and you know, yeah, great year for him, great year for Tennessee, but yeah, tough way to see to see his uh, career there come to an end. And um, yeah, it, it you know we're gonna have the final week of the season coming up. There's a lot on the line around the country. Obviously, the the big game, Ohio State, uh, Michigan's gonna get most of the attention and deservedly so. And um, that'll go a long way toward determining at least one of the playoff participants. Both teams still will have a shot regardless. Um, and then, of course, you know, the, the big game up in Corvallis for Oregon and Notre Dame USC has playoff implications. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're coming down to the wire. And it's hard. it's sad to see that we only got one more week of full full football. You want to know something crazy? Do you know who the Oregon quarterback coach was that recruited Hendon Hooker to Oregon? I didn't know we recruited Hendon Hooker or Hendon, Hendon. We were, I believe, the runner-up for Hendon Hooker services to Virginia Tech. Oh wow, way back in the day. Uh, so this would have been probably either Scott Frost or the guy who's now like the venture capital dude. No, it was yeah, it was David Yost. Uh, Yost. 20, <laughs> David Yost in 2017. Um, to say like so. Everyone jokes that Hendon Hooker is like 26 years old, which I think he is. Uh, he was in the same class, the class of 2017, um, which featured players like uh, Cam McCormick, uh, D'Amador Lenore, uh, <laughs> players that have been gone from Oregon for multiple seasons now. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, just kind of funny. Um, yeah, a player that Oregon recruited really hard uh, ended up signing with Fuente at Virginia Tech, and then now he's at Tennessee. Um, all these years later, but funny how that all works out. Yeah, and McCormick was class of 16, by the way, so he's even older. But uh, yeah, here you go. Holy crap. Wait, hold on. Now, I, now I'm curious. What year did Hendon Hooker sign? Because I think they're in the same class. Uh, Lenore was 17, but McCormick was 16. Hendon Hooker, 247. This is great that we're doing this live. Um, yeah. Really professional. Class of 2017. But he committed really. He committed in March of sixteen. So maybe yeah. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's why. But yeah, I knew. I knew that was that last Helfer cheer with with Yost. But yeah, that's funny. <laughs> All right. Well, any more? Or we wrap this up, and uh, we'll see everyone on Thursday for our pregame show for no, the rivalry week. Yeah, I think we wrapped this up. Everybody, thank you for listening so much. Uh, apologies for any of the audio errors that occurred on our last recording. Um, Again, make sure to follow the show at QB11 Show on Twitter. Follow myself at QB11SD. Follow Doug at DouglasTS. Uh, we really appreciate all the support. Uh, been a long season recording twice a week. We've done a pretty good job. I don't think we've missed a recording. I think we've been late once. Um, so, yeah, it's been a really fun first year of doing this. So, really appreciate uh, everybody and all the kind words. And um, look out for a tweet this week because I think we're going to do some mailbag questions for Thursday's episode. Definitely. All right. Have a wonderful day.